Welcome to the Age of Audio. My name's Graham Brown from the award-winning podcast agency Pickle & Co. The Age of Audio is a series of conversations with thought leaders and changemakers in the world of audio. That's podcast, radio, and social audio converging with big data to create engaging and authentic content for a new generation of listeners. Hi, Graham. Thanks for having me. It's great to speak to you. You're an audio guy through and through, not a, a latecomer to the scene. Um, what was your background in audio? I got my start in audio and radio, terrestrial radio, dinosaur radio. Um, and I was very lucky. I was 17 years old, senior in high school, hmm. and I took a um, media class in the, uh, the tech section of the high school. My high school was actually a hub among other towns, and we had like a tech course central location for all these different towns that handled small engines, woodworking, so on and so forth. And there was a media technology class and I'm a musician and uh, was like, okay, that sounds interesting. You know, I get to turn knobs and <laughs> play with audio. That's worth a few credits. And the teacher had a connection and the history in radio and knew of some people in the industry. And he caught word that, uh, a radio company um, near my school needed what's called a board operator. And in essence, what you're doing is you are playing a live syndicated show. Let's say it's based out of Washington, D.C., and you're feeding it to your local market and you monitor it and then you play your local commercials. Hmm. Uh, that was my start. And then I worked my way up eventually through different levels of management and then finally landed in something that I really enjoyed, which was commercial production, literally like making commercials that ran live on air, promos, mm. PSAs, commercials, working with Pro Tools, working in a nice studio, pulling in different DJs to voice, you know, read scripts for me, adding sound effects and putting together real live, what they call spots, uh, for local businesses and became that liaison between the production side and the sales staff because they're the ones actually selling the advertising. Hmm. So I did that for a couple of years and it was very cool and I, I enjoyed it. But when it comes to learning how to use Pro Tools fully, you're not going to get the full spectrum experience like you would working with bands, hmm. you know, that's a totally different beast, but nonetheless, it definitely gave me a lot of skills and tools that eventually came in very handy for me when I started the, the podcast journey. Hmm. I'm fascinated by those radio commercials. In some ways they have become very stylized. You know, you have that, those commercials where you have, the 10 second disclaimer at the end, which is read at sort of four times speed, isn't it? You've got yes. all that kind of stuff. What yeah. does a commercial producer know that your average person doesn't know about those spots? Well, um, that, that super fast disclaimer is not read that way. That's we, you know, we do the chipmunk, uh, <laughs> treatment to it. Um, a lot of people don't understand that a commercial is literally, 30 seconds long. 
to the point or 60 seconds or 45 seconds. And you do a lot of what's called time compression. You get it. You get the commercial within a few seconds. So let's say it's a 30 second spot and you do all the editing and you get it down to 32 seconds. Well, you can time compress that. So it's exactly 30 seconds and it doesn't quite affect the voice. It doesn't make it sound fast or slow, which in whatever direction you're moving in. So a lot of people don't realize that because radio, especially now more than ever is all programmed and everything needs to be exact. So when they break into a six minute commercial break, it needs to be exactly six minutes. So Hmm. that's um, that no one would ever understand that. No one's listening to a commercial with their stopwatch, (laughs) you know? Um, And often you hear a nice voice on a commercial and it's, it's the secretary from down the hall or it's, it's someone that works in finance or one of the accountants just comes down and reads something for you and you're good, (laughs) you know? So what happens in house stays in house. Right. Mm. But, uh, other than that, you know, look, before I started doing it, when you listen to radio, the commercials just kind of glide over you. You kind of mm-hmm. just, it's kind of background until you finally get back to music or honestly, you switch stations, you go to the next stations. Mm. But there's a lot of work that goes into the higher end stuff where it's, it's almost like it's painting a picture with audio, real mm. sound effects. You have 30 seconds to tell a story and convince someone to buy into something without visuals. So television, you can, you can just have something that looks pretty, a lot of imagery and doesn't, you don't need a lot of talking. You don't need a lot of text or, you know, is, well, they can put some text on the screen, but you're seeing the product in radio. You got to paint that picture. You have to put it in the person's mind, what it looks like. And to do that in 30 seconds is, is tricky. So really what it comes down to is this, the copywriting, which I didn't have to do. Thankfully, Hmm. that's the essence of radio commercials is the writing to be able to put all that information in a short amount of time is uh, challenging. Hmm. Well, a lot of people now talking about podcasts as a format for commercials and we're seeing the early experimentation, aren't we? of literally taking the format and dumping it into podcasts like for Mm -hmm. like it's almost a repeat of what would happen on radio i'm looking at that and thinking surely that that's probably a step one but step two is then expanding the format to be what it could be not limited like you say everything in radio was format was program Mm -hmm. and it had to be exactly 30 seconds because at you know, 30 seconds past the hour, this commercial kicked in and Mm -hmm. there couldn't be any dead time, even five seconds, right? However, with podcasts, we've now got flexibilities. We don't have that airtime shelf space, if you like. So when you Mm -hmm. see people moving into podcasts and recreating those commercials, what do you think? Do you think that that is as good as it can be? Or do we need to kind of think out of the box a little bit about how commercials can be on podcasts? Well, from my experience listening to podcasts, often the commercial is what we'd call a live read. The host has just got a script, a bullet point, and when they go into a new segment, they're doing it on the fly. Uh, And that's usually, you'll hear them 
you know, uh, do a commercial for ZipRecruiter or Stamps.com or some of these very common podcast-friendly advertisers that understand the reach that podcasts have. As far as other things that I've heard that's more like radio, and quite honestly, I've produced some podcasts that's more typical on the radio in the sense of you got a segment, you got music, fades you into a commercial, it's a 60-minute break, I'm sorry, a 60-second break, and then go into segment number two. And in all those situations that I've done that, it's pretty similar to the radio, same format. You, you always want to have what's called bumper music. That's another big radio term is bumpers. You don't want to just go from talking straight into a commercial. You want to have that music that pads you in, transi- transitions you out of the segment into a commercial, and on the back end of the commercial, transition you back into the next segment. Mm. Um, and then after that, podcasting is, I would say, more basic. You basically have a voiceover over music. There's your ad. And a lot of radio ads were that way, too. There are some simple ones, too. But then the higher-paying clients that wanted the higher-end ads that were being played at the best time of the day, those were the high, those were multi-layered sound effects, hmm. um, but they were paying big bucks for those. So podcasts, as we know, is shoestring budgets, <laughs> yeah, you know? Um, so, and it's usually the host doing the ad too. So, um, but throwing a commercial in the middle of a podcast is, is a nice way to break things up a little bit. You can pivot So you can say, you know, you can make the second segment something a little different. And another trick is when you're coming out of commercial, heading back into that second segment, you add a a unique bumper that announces what this next segment is. Hmm. So it's, it's a way of kind of guiding someone through the format. But I will say in the 80 plus podcasts I've touched since I started this 1% put ads in their podcasts or even fake ads. It's really just throw and go intro, intro monologue, little music, interview, outro, good night. You know, it's very, very more basic because, you know, this isn't radio. That is, that's, you got a lot of, you got a lot of radio shows that pivoted to podcasting like Adam Carolla is a big one early on when he lost his deal at K, um, K rock in California, when the station flipped what they call flipped formats, flipped formats, it went from rock to modern country or whatever. Well, there's no space for Adam Carolla on that. So they, they let him and his crew go and they pivoted early on before podcasting was really any, anything. It was, it was like, what's that? And iTunes was still browser. There wasn't any kind of app yet. Hmm. And, Adam Carolla is a big reason why podcast podcasts as a medium started growing. But what he did was he didn't start a podcast. He basically continued his radio show, recorded it and published it, published it as a podcast. So you have like the purest, the podcast purists out there kind of shy away from that. Hmm. They want from what I've read, a lot of the purists, they want grainy background noise, two people just talking for an hour aimlessly. That's to them podcasting. <laughs> so mm. but we've moved so on even to that, haven't we? we we're, that, that's sort of stage one of podcast. We've gone beyond that yeah. in terms of possibility. 
Oh, for sure. And, and yes, absolutely. So now I'm very fortunate to work with a lot of great, whether it be companies, entrepreneurs, CEOs, that have finally understand and realize the power of podcasting as a marketing tool. Hmm. And that's, that's when things really started firing up because it didn't become, I want to have a podcast for entertaining people and getting downloads or, you know, I really want to get a bunch of downloads and try to make money doing this. Hmm. Now, and in my opinion, the correct way to look at podcasting is a tool to market your brand. It's just another extension. Just like when Facebook was its new thing, all of a sudden businesses realized, oh, I guess I need to be on there. I don't know what it is, but I need to be on there. Hmm. And then now you got Facebook ads and you get Instagram and, and all of these new little social media hubs became new branches from the, from the main tree of the company. You need to print, you need blogs, you need social media, you need YouTube. Well, now, you know what? Now you need podcasts. Hmm. And, and people understand the power of it because you can interview other people. That's how you network within your industry. Uh, and that networking, in essence, will eventually circle around and make you money. If you're trying to promote your business through podcasting and within that networking while interviewing other people in your industry and you land a couple clients because of those people that you met, there's your monetary gain. Hmm. And the right people are getting it. And they're willing to throw some money at podcasting, even though you don't have or really have direct monetary gain from it, but it's a, it's a big picture. Mm. Um, and look, <laughs> I have experienced in the last two plus years now, three years now that I've been doing this, I've, I've seen it firsthand. It's like wildfire. You'd be amazed at how many people out there have budgets willing to spend for podcasting. It's, remarkable yeah the time is now hey Derek what I want to do is just a, a quick uh there's a couple of things I want to discuss with you obviously uh I want to do a quick fire round with you as a as a radio uh, and audio pro I want to shoot some terms for you and I want you to tell us exactly what they mean uh-oh these are these are yeah it's a test <laughs> it's like getting your license again right oh here we go yeah exactly so I'm going to shoot some terms at you and Educate us what these mean, and then maybe we can dive into what they could mean for podcasts as well. Uh, so just short definitions would be great of these. Are you ready? I think so. Yeah. Ambush. <laughs> right, let's do it. Um, bumper. Okay, yeah. So, uh, again, in radio, um, it, is, it is a transitional piece. It's taking you from one thing to the next, whether it be, again, leading you into a commercial Coming out of a news break, going back into a new segment, a bumper is often also called a sweeper or a jingle because it will have singing or a quick little voiceover, literally a three-second four-word. Now you're listening to such and such. Mm. Boom. Next segment. So that's the bumper is, uh, okay, you're watching uh, the David Letterman show and David Letterman throws it to a commercial you hear that music fire up and then they show paul schaefer and the cbs orchestra as then it fades into the commercial that's a bumper mm. the key here is keeping the audience attention isn't it and making them feel constant like there's no drop off there's no it's seamless isn't it otherwise you lose yeah. them and they're on to the next one next one derek is stinger 
What's the difference between a bumper stinger. and a stinger? Very similar. A stinger is that's so great you're asking these. Now I'm 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 liking this because this is bringing me back to Ray. <laughs> a stinger is very short, very short. And it can be, let's say you're doing a segment like a top 10 segment, and you're just running down the top 10 best guitarists. And in between, you you say number 10, and you give a little your opinion. You know, you're the host. You're giving your reasoning why you, f- you feel like Jimmy Page is number 10. Mm. And after 60 seconds, as you transition into number nine, you hit a stinger. And it's some kind of sound effect that, all right, flips you to the next one now. Uh, a stinger is often used in news, in between news reads. The traditional news broadcaster is telling a story. And now it's now t- time to move on to the next story in the Middle East. Mm. And then you get a stinger. Boom. And it just separates topics, ideas. You can literally hit that stinger and you're on to the next topic or story or whatever. Excellent. We'll give you full marks for these. Uh, What's mid-roll? Ah, now we're talking podcasting. Mid-roll is a commercial and it's in the middle of the podcast. And uh, sometimes it's an actual produced thing, you know, with a music bed and a voiceover. Um, but like I said earlier in podcasting, a lot of it is live reads. Hmm. So right in the middle, right in the middle of the the episode, the host will break into the commercial and they have, they have an outline and somewhat of a script, but they're encouraged to ad lib too. Hmm. That's encouraged. Uh, then you have pre-roll and post-roll in those, you know, same I would say the pre-roll is much more scripted and pre-recorded. And then you just, you place it right in the front before they produce intro. And then obviously the post-roll is on the out, but yeah, mid-roll. We'll give you 10 out of 10 for that one. One from the radio world, syndication. Yes. So going back to my, my roots, uh, I was a board operator for a show called the Don and Mike show. They were based out of Washington, DC and much like Howard Stern, these guys start local, you know, Howard Stern, we all, I mean, Howard Stern is massive, but there was a time when he was just a local DJ. Hmm. He worked his way up to major market, but he was still local, even though he was in New York. Well, once you start gaining some real traction and some real ratings, stations from around the country will buy you like we want Howard Stern in the morning in our market in Phoenix, Arizona, let's say. And there's, I don't know all the ins and outs on the business side of that, but they make it happen. So WNEU, uh, where well, one of the New York stations, Howard Stern was at, you know, works out some kind of deal with another radio station and they're getting kicked back from advertising. That's, their local advertising that they're doing during Howard Stern's show. And then now that just, that branches Howard Stern out hmm. or the show that I used to do called Donna Mike. And then you have all these little board operators all over the country, like I was doing that would take the feed from the host, if you will. Right. And play it to my market, let the national commercials go. And then we would get two minutes of each break. Let's say it was a six-minute commercial break. We would get the last two minutes in our local area 
you do what's called dump. You dump the network and then you put in your local commercials. Hmm. So syndication is, is just that you have your host in one studio and then that station basically sells the show all over the country to different radio stations uh, and they syndicate that way. So the advertising is both baked in at the local level. So from the Howard Stern mm-hmm. note, if you like, and then they also mm-hmm. give you, like you say, that two minute space to put your, mm-hmm. your stations commercials. And that's the selling point. Mm. It's like, we'll let you have our highly rated number one host go on your station. Uh, and our way to pay you is we'll let you have ad space. Hmm. You know, and and then, of course, yeah, I mean, Howard's turn lands in your market. You're going to sell some commercials. <laughs> so in that model, would you, I mean, just very vaguely, I know it's case by case, but in that syndication model, the local, let's say, uh, you know, the station down in Tennessee would <laughs> license Howard Stern's content from New York that mm-hmm. would come with the New York advertisers or the national advertisers and your spots for the local Tennessee advertisers as well. Who, who's paying who in that? Or is it a straight swap? Like, okay, you get the space and we get to promote our national advertisers down in Tennessee. How does that generally work? It's a mixture. A, a show like Howard Stern, you're, you're paying some money for Howard Stern and mm-hmm. you get your ad space. Um, a lot of the smaller shows, maybe like an ESPN show, let's say a sports show or a lesser known syndicated show might work it through barter. So mm-hmm. my Tennessee station wants the G Gordon Liddy show and we get it because we guarantee that we're going to air X amount of national ads and that's the trade off. So we get our little space, but we're guaranteeing that we're going to play the national commercials that sponsor that show and then there's no there is no pay it's barter hmm. so you, you both are just promising each other you air this i'll air that we're all happy hmm. but for a show like howard stern no you gotta you gotta pay it's a that special guy. case right yeah. <laughs> yeah absolutely when i look at podcasts and when we sort of consider the models there we haven't really seen the maturation of that model yet have we we've got on the one hand ad networks who are programmatic, which are sort of inserting ads uh, based on yeah. the, the content on, a, mm-hmm. on an automated basis. And then you have the networks like Spotify buying content, mm-hmm. and then that becomes their advertising real estate. We don't have anything that is re- remotely like syndication yet, or do we? Do we think we can go into that model? Let's say, you know, you have the, the, the Derek show, and that's a mm-hmm. big hit in Tennessee and then you you've got your local or national advertisers on that and you have this option now to take it into China into the Mandarin speaking market mm-hmm. and obviously that's a huge opportunity for that local beer brand that you're working with Th- those <laughs> are kind of opportunities that are out there we have we seen anything like that yet is that possible or do we need a completely different model i think it's happening now in this, in the sense that I can post a podcast episode tomorrow, and someone in China could potentially listen to it tomorrow, or if they have access to either Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Pandora, if they can, if they can attach to any of those platforms that I'm syndicated in, 
then they can ultimately capture, you know, they can listen to me. Where in radio syndication, it's all mm-hmm. airwaves. You can't have one station in New York and expect someone in Phoenix, Arizona to hear you unless you syndicate. So in a way, podcasting is already syndicated. And, and that's kind of the terminology. When you submit your podcast hmm. to the, the platforms, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, what you're doing is you're submitting for syndication. That's actually the somewhat normal term for that. Okay, that's great. I can throw up a podcast. And yeah, someone in China or someone in Australia can listen to me. That's amazing. But they're never going to hear of me. So hmm. podcasting networks is sort of a hybrid of podcasting and, the, and radio in the sense that if you can be a part of a network, they have money to push you. They have that, they have that marketing budget to put you where you need to be in front of people in all the right areas. So people now understand, like discovering who you are, listening to your show that way. I don't have any experience with working with a network, but that's usually what it means is Mm. you are backed. Now you can get in trouble too, in the sense that that network might own your show. You might lose all intellectual property. IP, yeah. Intellectual property. And yeah, that's why some of these podcasts, the host will leave and they can't take the name with them. And that happens in radio too, or even in like the, the night shows, the late night shows, you know, when David Letterman had a, you know, a iconic um, segment called the top 10 list. Right. And for years he started on NBC and then he later went to CBS. Well, it was a big negotiation for him to take that segment with him. NBC owned his top 10 list. He didn't own it. They owned it. Even though it was his idea and his writers did it for him and it was all them, NBC owned it. He ended up earning the rights to it and could take it with him. But that's the that's the payoff sometimes or the catch-22 to be in a network. They're going to push you, but they also own you, much like record labels and music industry. Mm-hmm. They're throwing all this money at a band, but at the end of the day, the band doesn't own their own publishing. They don't own their music, their masters, nothing. It, so that's the that's the trade. Or that band can go independent and go mm. on YouTube and ultimately if they do it right on their own, yeah, they can get a million subscribers and they have all these audiences that they can go see and tour in different pockets of the world or country. But that's hard and not a lot of bands can do that, but they own everything. Mm. So the some of these real independent artists that do manage to make it big, air quote, make it big on their own. That's oh, the ultimate because they own 100% of their stuff where yeah. you have you have bands that still are in debt to their record labels after five albums. Oh, you know? there's, uh, there's many a shipwreck out there, isn't there? I was watching <laughs> on uh, Netflix, there's a good documentary called The Lion's Share, which is about the, um, the Lion Sleeps Tonight song. Yeah. As an mm-hmm. example, which originally came from another song called Mbume or Wimbue. You know, there's that mm-hmm. or yep. that sort of backing acapella yep. on it. Yep. Well, that was that was originally recorded by this South African dude in 1939 or something ridiculous like that. And he's got, <laughs> he's on record. He was like in the literally the first record uh, recording studio in South Africa. Mm-hmm. 
he mm-hmm. went in and did it recorded it on vinyl it was just some like you know south african dude who was a, a manual laborer who could sing in churches mm-hmm. and uh he recorded it and yet it got co-opted in the u.s and then you know like lots of people released versions of it like the lion sleeps mm-hmm. tonight and then uh obviously it went into disney and disney put it out in the lion king and they made millions out of it mm-hmm. and the whole it's interesting the whole documentary is about this journalist trying to tie disney down and get the rights you know rightfully paid to the guy who wrote it who's dead now to his to his yeah. daughters yeah it's it's incredible because they do actually reach a settlement at the end, but the the complete irony of it is is that they sue Disney successfully, settle out of court for these <laughs> rights, and um, yeah. then the lawyers that represented the family who had nothing, you know, got nothing from this. They just took all the oh. the the winnings in fees. It was it's yeah. a really sad story. That so they basic sad. yeah they assign all the rights. You see. That is, yeah. yeah, that's that's a tough story because that was theft in a way, you know, that they just used it and didn't think anyone would ever no. ever in a million years know that they took it from something. And then you have you have situations that people will steal a melody. It happens oh, yeah. all the time now. You hear a song you like, that's like um Marvin Gaye lately has been getting hit. Yeah. People ripping, ripping from Marvin Gaye. And the artist is like, oh, I'm sorry. And then they just add Marvin Gaye as a, on the publishing as mm. a co-writer. So then now his estate's getting paid now, like he should be, or like his estate should be. Yeah. A, lot, a lot of artists are doing that now. You know, instead of asking permission there, you know, they're just doing it and then we'll apologize after. And then they, yeah. and they'll just add the name to the, to the credits. So they, they get some royalties. Um, what a really wacky story. Are you familiar with Credence Clearwater Revival? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So John Fogarty wrote Born in the Bayou. Mm. Huge hit for CCR. CCR disbands. Record label owns everything. Um, All the masters, all the rights. Years later, George Fogarty writes a song. I can't remember the name of it. And it has a similar vibe to Born in the Bayou. It's not a ripoff. But the record company that owned CCR music thought it was, and they sued him and they won. They sued him for sort of maybe kind of ripping off his own song. (laughs) Love it. You can see the lawyers put a good Christ across, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's nutty. It's nutty. So, I mean, you mentioned Jimmy Page, a lot of that early Led Zepp stuff is mm-hmm. completely lifted from there, there's an album isn't there called like the blues origins of Led Zeppelin which is mm-hmm. just like Led Belly and stuff if you look at the writing cl- uh, credits now a lot of those old blues players and stuff are now in there yeah. so finally well finally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah I mean a lot of that Led Zepp stuff sounds exactly like uh, you know some of those old songs like it's yeah. amazing, really. There's a really, there's a, a quite a dark copyright story about, there's a famous song from Australia called Land Down Under. I don't know if you know the Land Down Under. It's quite a famous pop song, but it has this sort of um, flute riff in, in it, uh-huh. which is called the Kookaburra riff, right? Okay. And you listen to it and it's the men at work and it's uh, oh, famous, yeah. you know, that song. It's sort of hit in the 80s if you're 
remember yes. those days? Absolutely. Uh, you know, massive global hit. But the Kookaburra riff was lifted from a kid's song. The thing is, they didn't know it until somebody on some pop quiz on TV, they played the Kookaburra song and they said, what does this sound like? And this was like 20 years after the single was published. And somebody said on that panel show, oh, that sounds just like Men at Work Down Under. Mm. Well, it just so happens that the person who um, was connected to the estate of the Kookaburra song was watching that TV show, contacted the lawyers, and the lawyers said, mm, we've got a case here. They then <laughs> sued um, the guy from Men at Work who owned the, the rights, mm -hmm. and yeah. um, they cleaned them out. But the dark thing was is the guy, the flutist, the flautist, the guy that does that, committed suicide because he was like completely ruined because he didn't own up to ripping that from the Kookaburra. <laughs> It's a really dark story, but they still, he's still going, the, the guy that wrote Land Down Under. Oh, yeah, Men at Work. Or, yeah, they're, they've uh, cemented themselves in that, that 80s alternative, yeah. you know, retro 80s, which I'm a big fan of that whole era, like Tears for Fears and uh, yeah, that's a good one. All, all that stuff, yeah. Well, there's some when, great songwriters, right? I mean, Tears for Fears, it was the, um, well, one of them, wasn't it? I can't yeah. remember which, Roland or whatever. The other guy mm -hmm. was just a singer, wasn't he? But he was a really good songwriter. I mean, the production level of the, the that era of, you call it the 80, the new wave, retro, yeah. whatever you want to call it, the production. You throw that music into a set of nice headphones. It's just remarkable how clean and well-mixed everything is. It's really nice. And this is all before Pro Tools and any, mm. kind, of, any kind of digital editing. They 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 had to really know the the science of using a studio as an instrument and really mm. and making it making things sound great. The baseline for Vanilla Ice's Ice Ice Baby. Ice Ice Baby. That's that's like the most infamous. Yeah, that's well, cool. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> well, and, there you go. Well, yeah. I don't think anybody believed it was Vanilla Ice. Yeah. Yeah, man, it's good. It's a good chat. We we went off and down the, the rabbit hole, but I can talk about music forever. I know you're a complete like music head, so yeah, yeah, I can um, talk about podcasting too forever. So. Yeah. You've been listening to the Age of Audio with me, Graham Brown, from the award-winning podcast agency Pickle and Co. To get access to all the audio conversations and book content for The Age of Audio, go to www.theageofaudio.com. One more time, theageofaudio.com.